Welcome to the Confident Money Podcast, where we talk money, finances, and accounting for real people without all the technical jargon, patronizing, and gatekeeping. I'm your host, Caitlin Magnuson, and I'm going to be your new finance bestie. Hey, welcome back to Confident Money Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Magnuson, and we have Kyle Seagraves with us to continue the series that we have been doing for the last couple of episodes. A little bit about Kyle, if you're just tuning in. Kyle is a certified mortgage advisor, licensed loan originator, and the owner of Win the House You Love, a YouTube channel with over 100,000 subscribers. Kyle, welcome back. Uh, today, we're going to be chatting all about budgets financing, renting versus owning, and kind of the nitty gritty of what the numbers look like when you're looking to purchase a home. Yeah, I think this is one of the more overwhelming pieces. I think for a lot of people, it's okay, can I get approved for mortgage? But then number two is how do all of these numbers work? Because there are a ton of different numbers. And uh, they can be really overwhelming because a lot of them are estimates. And I think this is the for most people, the largest purchase they've ever made. And so they've heard horror stories or um, just not used to spending that much money or seeing numbers that are that big. And so uh, it can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be, especially if you have a good plan and you understand how everything works. It's going to make it a lot easier as you move, move forward with the home buying decision. Absolutely. And I think when we're talking about budget, I know earlier when you had mentioned, you know, qualifying for a loan, we had mm-hmm. talked about, you know, you normally have a certain amount of debt to income ratio that you you can have and be approved for. And I believe that can vary depending on the type of loan. But, you know, what is kind of the maximum that people are looking at when they're getting approved? Yeah, all loans are different. And like we talked about in some of the other episodes, they're all based on a computer's decision most of the time. However, a good rule of thumb is uh, around 45% maximum debt to income ratio. And so what that includes is going to be your monthly uh, debt payments. So things like, uh, and these are all minimum payments, not what you actually pay. So the minimum payment on a credit card, minimum payment on a student loan, on a car loan. And then also that's going to include uh, your future mortgage payment. And that future mortgage payment is going to be principal, interest, taxes, and insurance as well. So um, what the easiest way to figure that out is to take your monthly gross income and multiply it times 0.45. From there, subtract your minimum monthly debt payments. So maybe you have you know, 100 bucks on a credit card or 300 bucks on a, a car. Take that away, and then you have the max that you can pay on a mortgage. I think that's a great way to do it. And... I know that I get asked this a lot. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but let's say you're able to get approved for a loan that allows you to have a debt to income ratio of 45%. Mm -hmm. And you're happy with what that looks like. It allows you to afford homes in your area with whatever your personal debt situation is. What is the general rule of thumb or the best practice when it comes? And I know we're going to chat about this further in more detail, but Mm -hmm. when it comes to should you go for a loan or move forward with a loan that puts your debt to income ratio at 45% of your income of your, you know, household situation. Yeah. You get no prize for going all the way to the maximum of how much you can afford. And so that's where a lot of people talk about the difference between what you uh, should qualify for, what what the mortgage payment you should have versus the mortgage payment you could have. Um, Most people are actually really surprised when they see how much they could get approved for And on the could side, this is what a lender would be willing to to offer you. And it's all based on risk. So how risky do they think you are? 
uh, the less risky, the more money they're going to be willing to lend to you. So on the could side, that's where we're looking somewhere around the 45% range. There are some programs that go up to 56.99%, like where most of your income goes to debt. I wouldn't recommend going that high. Again, there's zero prize there. And it's important to realize too that a loan officer is not a financial advisor. There are a lot of really great ethical professionals who can help you understand your budget, but ultimately they are not there to help you have a really sturdy budget. They're there to help you get a mortgage. Um, and so it's important to keep that in mind. Not that they would push you into something, but they're not keeping tabs on your budget like you are. You're the one who lives in that day in, day out. So maybe we don't take advice from the person who isn't living inside of our budget on what we feel comfortable with, right? Just because we could qualify for something according to a lender doesn't mean it makes sense for us because there's more that goes on in our budget than just debt. There's also savings goals. Uh, maybe you have, I mean, there's a million other things that we're spending money on that we care about than just you know our credit card payments and car loans and things like that. So then that brings on the question of what, uh, what mortgage payment should we have? And obviously the lower is better there. No one really just wants to have a higher mortgage payment for the sake of it. And so this is where it's hard though to figure out like what's a good rule of thumb because this changes for people depending on their situation, depending on their income. Um, someone who is making $200,000 a year has a lot more discretionary income than somebody who is making forty dollars to $50,000 per year. And so using uh, percentages is um, not the most ideal, but it can help us get a good framework to begin with. So usually what I recommend to people is looking at 28% of their gross income um, is a really ideal maximum. Now, someone who has a lower income might have to have a higher debt to income ratio uh, to find safe housing that works for them. Whereas somebody who makes higher income might be able to reduce that. And also with how home values have been increasing, sometimes for a lot of people, those ratios are increasing as well because it's getting more and more difficult to find a home that could fit in that uh, more affordable range. Absolutely. And I think I know that you and I chatted about this, but it also is dependent upon what your personal financial goals are or what matters mm -hmm. to you, right? So are you just looking for a place to rest your head at night and you don't really care maybe if you have a backyard yeah. or if you're in a super walkable neighborhood or if you're in a certain school district, there are different factors that are so individual. You know, for, for me, I, our neighborhood has a walkable score of zero because we don't have sidewalks or public roads. Um, mm -hmm. But for someone else that had kids that, you know, was looking to, you know, maximize a really great school district for them, their priority may be finding something that's there. And that may mean that yeah. they're paying a little bit more out of pocket or, you know, they're able to do that as well as when someone lives in a higher cost of living area, you're normally going to see a higher percentage of their overall income spent on their housing expense mm -hmm. because that's, it just is what it is. It's more expensive yeah. to live in those areas. Yeah. And I think in the budgeting conversation too, a lot of people forget that uh, you don't have to buy the dream perfect home right now, especially if this is your first home, like let's throw away that idea. I think the idea of a dream home is stupid because like if I think about what I liked, not even just with housing, just with anything, a, a paint color in this office two years ago, I liked it. And now I'm like, ah, I could change it. So like same thing happens with, with a house, with everything that you buy in life, your preferences are going to change over time. And I think it's a really big mistake. We set ourselves up for emotional failure when we say I have to buy the dream home and it has to fit into this budget. 
well, you're expecting this, like in, in our mind, we're like, we want the lifelong home to fit in with maybe our income in a career that we just started our business that we just started, or we're not, we're in like growth phase, but over here we're in permanent lifelong phase. Right. Established and they're not phase, matching. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we don't have to have the dream home just yet. Uh, the way most people buy homes, what works really well is actually kind of like a stepping stone. We buy the first home, what a lot of people call a starter home. What's something that can fit in our budget that meets most of the goals that we have for the house? Maybe the school district that we want. Uh, maybe it's not, ha- doesn't have the perfect yard, but has a good enough yard. And we live in that home. It builds up appreciation. And then we can either sell or rent that out, use money to then buy the next home that's even better and work our way through a stepping stone rather than trying to fit this lifelong goal into our budget that might not be able to accommodate it at the moment. No, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think, especially when you're looking at down payments and increasing home prices, I know that for us, the house that we're in now was so much more accessible because Mm -hmm. we had purchased that starter home. That was, it it was what it was at the time. I loved it. I was very excited. It served its purpose. And I think that a lot of us get so emotionally invested in the house that we're looking to purchase versus looking at it to an extent from a numbers perspective, right? Because it is, it's a huge purchase and it's somewhere that you're going to spend a lot of time, but it also doesn't have to be permanent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the perfect home right away. (laughs) Exactly. And maybe you make it your perfect home. Maybe it becomes your perfect home, but you know, give it five to 10 years and maybe your taste will have changed. I know mine certainly did. And my budget was able to change during that time as well, both due to increased earning power, as well as having, you know, equity established in the house that did, it made a really big difference. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you subscribe and join our community at confidentmoneypodcast.com where we share resources and all of the money happenings. Plus, you can send feedback and suggestions for what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. That's confidentmoneypodcast.com. Okay, back to the show. When we're looking at that and when we're looking to buy, what are we looking at for a lot of loans for, you know, monthly and upfront costs once someone gets established and actually, you know, has a loan, goes through the home purchase process and they're, they're in it. What does that look like for them? Yeah. So these, this is one of the hardest parts to go through with an estimate on because there's so many different variables depending on where somebody's at, the loan program that they're looking at. Um, I do have a tool that I call the max uh, purchase price calculator where you can put in your income and your debts and it will show you uh, a recommended maximum purchase price and help you estimate some numbers. Um, But really for a lot of people, it's kind of like what we talked about in some other episodes where the best way to get the most accurate numbers is to just talk with somebody talking with the loan officer and saying, Hey, I'm kind of in this spot where like, I don't, I don't even know what what these numbers look like. Could you help me figure this out? Because often what a lot of people do is they kind of do all the steps backwards. They're like, we want to find a house. So they look at homes on like Zillow or realtor.com. And then they see the little monthly payment thing. Well, the, the monthly payment that's recommended there is the best case scenario. That's if you're putting 20% 20% down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no mortgage insurance like we talked about on the loan requirements episode. You know, the taxes may not be accurate. Uh, home insurance is always like ridiculously low. And so people run off of that number and then they don't, all they think about is the down payment. So maybe it's 3% down on a conventional loan or 3.5% down on an FHA loan. And so in their mind, they're thinking those are the only costs. 
It's going to be a low monthly payment. We can afford that. And a low down payment. We can afford that. And then they go through the mortgage process and realize, wait, okay, well, we were only putting 3% down. So that changed the monthly payment quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the taxes, now that we see what the accurate ones are, are higher than we anticipated. And then also the upfront costs also have closing costs associated with buying any home. Whether we're buying with a loan or with cash, there's going to be closing costs involved there. And a lot of people get stopped in that moment. And this is where a lot of kind of some beginner's buyer remorse comes in because they didn't do planning up front to mm-hmm. see what the numbers were. They jumped in on a home before they were confident in what the numbers were. And really, we can uh, guess and use like really good estimates all day long. But it's not until we talk with somebody who can actually see our situation, show us examples of programs, and lay out those numbers for us that we can get a really solid idea. So when you do talk with a loan officer and you start to get pre-approved, they'll give you a quote. And in that loan quote, um, we want several things. We want to know what kind of program uh, they're going to offer us. Um, Also the terms, like is it a 30-year loan? Is it a 15-year loan? Um, And then from there, they're going to break down the monthly payment. So what we're paying on principal and interest for the loan, what we're paying in property taxes to the county, also what we're paying in homeowner's insurance, they're going to estimate that. Any mortgage insurance, if we're uh, putting less than 20% down on a conventional loan or we're using any type of government loan other than VA. And they're going to list all of those out so we can see a total there. And then for upfront costs, they're going to show us the down payment, but also they're going to estimate all the other costs with buying a home. So things like uh, getting your appraisal, um, title insurance, a title report, any recording fees or taxes from the county that you're in, and then also your escrow account, which is going to set up a small account for taxes and insurance set aside upfront for you. Um, so that quote is actually going to show you both the monthly payment and the upfront costs all together on one or two pages. So you can have a really solid idea moving forward rather than just, oh, we saw this on Zillow and it looks good enough. So we move forward with it. No, I, I definitely fell into that trap. I think when I was looking to buy my first house where I hopped on Zillow, and I was like, oh, this looks great. And then yeah, you look into it, yeah. and like, oh, this is a 20% down payment and everything else. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. So what I thought would be $750 a month is actually $1,100 a month. Kind of changes things, especially with the first home. Yeah. I'm going through this right now with a house that I'm buying. The lady who lives there, um, according to the county, she only pays $1,000 a year in taxes. Uh, that's because she gets a homestead exemption she, because she's above 65. Uh, also, the home when she bought it was like a quarter of the value that it is now. Um, and so it hasn't been reassessed. So the moment that I buy the house for four times the value that she bought it years ago, all of a sudden that gets put in the tax records. And then also, I'm not above 65, so yeah. I don't get that exemption. So my taxes are probably going to quadruple. So it's even those things of, oh, I could look online and see. But if you're not talking with somebody who can help you understand these things, it's very easy for people to say, oh, taxes are only $1,000 a year. A year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you're going to get a bill and it's 4000 a year. And like, oh my gosh, this is completely different. How was this not caught? Um, and that's why it's usually best to talk with a professional before we get really comfortable with the numbers. Absolutely. Now, I have thoughts on this. and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but there are quite a few different loan terms, right? We can look at 10-year, mm-hmm. 15-year, 30-year. Like there, There's a whole variety of them. And yeah. obviously, my thoughts on this depend on you know what your personal financial goals are. But I know that there can be a really popular thought 
we're going to say should again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that you should pay off your debt or you should pay it off as quickly as possible. Again, depending on your personal finance goals, I disagree with that, but I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, the financing terms for mortgages. Yeah. Um, so are you talking kind of more specifically like the 3015 kind of? The, I would say more specifically the 3015. I feel like those are the two most common options yeah. that come about for people. Yeah. So that is a, a big question people have. And if you're in that position where you can entertain the conversation between a 30-year and a 15-year mortgage, already you're in a very good position. Mm-hmm. Most people can't entertain a 15-year mortgage because the monthly payment is so much higher because we're only paying it off over 15 years rather than 30. So if you're in that spot, I know sometimes we can get like decision paralysis, like you're in a really good position if that's the case already. So just know like at this point, it's more about how do we squeeze out a little bit extra savings in our our choices here. So a 15-year loan obviously is going to have a higher monthly payment than a 30-year because we're paying it off in half the time. The difference in these though is that these are the required monthly payments in that if you miss a payment, it's going to reflect on your credit report. And a mortgage late is a huge deal on your credit score. Having a late mortgage payment will completely derail your credit score and is really difficult to recover from. So in my opinion, I would rather have the lower required monthly payment on a 30 year and pay it as if it was a 15 year loan. It's very easy to do. So let's say the 15 year mortgage was let's say $1,800 per month. And the 30 year mortgage was let's say $1,100 per month. It's very easy to pay the 1100 mortgage payment plus an additional $700 towards the principal of the mortgage every month. We're paying it the same monthly payment as a 15 year. And we're going to pay it off in just about the same amount of time. Now, a 15 year loan is going to have a lower interest rate, uh, not crazy, like significantly lower, but it will have a lower interest rate than the 30 year. And so that's why people do have some interest in it. But even if you run those numbers side by side, the savings that you'll get on a 15 year, if you pay the 30 year, like the 15 is pretty negligible. And then if you want to take it a step further, if you're kind of more into the investment side, an even better decision most of the time is to take the 30 year, take that $700 and actually invest it into something like an S&P 500 ETF and earn an average 10% growth on that money rather than paying off the mortgage. You'll actually benefit a lot better by using that strategy than going with the 15 year. So that coupled with other things like uh, the fact that inflation actually eats away at your mortgage balance over time, where it actually is beneficial to hold a loan over a long period of time because inflation is reducing the balance of the money comparative to the cost of the dollar makes me want to lean more towards the 30. And then one last practical piece I feel like is beneficial of the 30 year is when things happen like COVID and you have either reduction in hours or income or laid off from a job, I would rather be able to fall back to a lower required monthly payment on the 30 year than have that high 15 year payment. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with everything that you said. So I understand that there's a psychological benefit to being debt-free for some people, and I'm not discounting that in the slightest, but I cannot express how grateful I was, A, to be in a position, because you brought up, it's, it's a really privileged position. When we refinanced the house that we were in before, we were able to choose between a 15 and a 30. 
Mm-hmm. And for us at that time, I went with the 30 for exactly that reason. It gave me more flexibility. And then I, at the time I was paying more towards the mortgage, but in hindsight, and what I'm doing now is we have a 30 year mortgage and the extra money that I would like to be paying towards that is absolutely being invested right now. Because yeah. if I have, let's say a three point something percent, you know, interest mortgage, and I'm getting an average over 10 years of a 10%, you know, per year return on my investments, the mm-hmm. negative interest that I'm paying is dramatically, you know, overcompensated for by the interest that I'm earning on my investments. Yeah. And then if I get to a spot where I'm unemployed or I'm underemployed or there is a financial disaster that comes through, I have money and investments that I can pull on and I'm able to yeah. use those to cover my mortgage or to do things, but my monthly requirements are lower, which I think is really great to have because at the end of the day, it is my required mortgage payment is like what, $1,500 less than it would have been, which is, that, that's a big lifeline. And what's nice is if you want to pay off the mortgage, you can still do it in the same amount of time with the investment strategy, because you're going to have all this money accumulating in an account actually quicker than if you just, yes. it's going to be earning interest versus, uh, you know, you paying interest. So by the time it gets to your mortgage payment, if you still want to be mortgage-free, you can pull it out of your investments and pay off your home actually quicker than if you just put it straight into the mortgage. Absolutely. And I I think the last idea that you had mentioned about, you know, inflation, and I think that that can be a little bit convoluted for people, but I think that we're seeing that right now when you're able to borrow money, so to speak, at a lower rate than inflation, Mm -hmm. I think not taking advantage of that, if you're able to, is unwise. And that's the other reason that I'm personally not looking to pay my mortgage off early at this point in my life, because that money is like... Inflation was what, six or 7% this year? Mm-hmm. So, dollars that I have, you know, are becoming worth less, but by having the home and not paying it off early, I'm actually making it, making out ahead because my dollars every year are worth more money. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It aligns a lot with what you've talked about with the anti budget of being able to automate mm-hmm. a lot of these things where I think <laughs> I've heard most people when they talk about a 15 year, they're like, it forces me to save money. Okay, there's way better ways to do this than to get into a like contractual obligation for 15 years <laughs> on one payment, uh, where you can still have the 30 and automate your budget with whatever tools you would recommend into saying, okay, I'm going to take that 500, 700, whatever that difference is, and invest that into whatever whatever account. Maybe it's funding an IRA to begin with. Maybe you're putting into a taxable account, into some ETFs, or whatever you want in those becomes really easy to do and it's all hands-free without you having to do that every single month. No. And again, you can automate paying your mortgage off, at least with most lenders, if that was your priority or automate savings goals or automate your other goals. And I think that, and I I have, I've heard that before. Well, if it's the 15 year, then I have to pay it. Right. There's, there's big consequences, but (laughs) yeah. I mean, having gone through COVID and having seen what a lot of our clients experienced, I definitely would advise against it. If you don't have to get a 15-year loan, I mean, I don't know a circumstance in which you would have to, but why Why would you do that? Why would you put that pressure on yourself when, okay, maybe you save $100 less. Maybe you get takeout, you know, a couple times a month because you have a little bit more flexibility. I don't think that's the yeah. worst thing in the world either, so long as you're still meeting your financial goals. So with that, Kyle, when you're looking to you know get your loan and to, to finance and you're looking at the 15 versus the 30 and all these other factors that come in, I know that a lot of people ask about 
points mm-hmm. and, you know, what that kind of means for them and should they, you know, should they move forward with it and how to decide? Yeah. I really don't like points that much. <laughs> I'll back up for a second. What a point is, think of it like prepaid interest. So most people think that a loan officer is going to give them one interest rate. So for example, let's use 5%. They go to a loan officer and the, the loan officer says, I'll give you a mortgage and we'll be able to give you a 5%. Uh, that, that's going to be what you're going to be paying on your debt, a 5% interest rate. And most people think that's it. But it actually, you can choose your interest rate and they have different points or credits associated with it. So 5% might be $0 in cost. However, we could lower the interest rate to maybe 4.875%. So we're paying slightly less interest, but upfront it may cost us, uh, let's say one point, which would be 1% of the loan amount. So if we had a $400,000 loan, we might pay $4,000 upfront to lower our interest rate. And we can actually do the reverse. We can actually increase the interest rate and receive a credit back. A lot of people don't talk about credits, but no, I've that's what would be called. That. Yeah, we could get like a lender credit. Um, and actually, uh, this is what I recommend for a lot of people who are getting something like an FHA loan, who have a lower credit score, who are going to refinance in the future. We can actually take advantage of the fact that they're not going to be paying a high interest rate over a long period of time. So I'll say, let's use the bank's money against them. Let's mm-hmm. take a higher interest rate, give you a credit for your closing costs. And since you're going to refinance uh, in two years, you're not going to pay more in interest than the credit that they gave you. So we took advantage of their money over a short period of time and use that. Now we can do the opposite too. We can say, well, could I pay more money up front to save interest over a period of time? And we can do that through points. All it's all as a percentage of the loan amount. So one point is 1%, two points is 2% of the loan amount. And so then what we're looking at is what's the break even period between us paying the money up front versus the money that we save in interest over the term of the loan. A lot of people do this wrong. They will just look at the general monthly payment, but you only want to look at the interest payment to see the savings here. And people also make the mistake of not comparing it against, let's say we paid $4,000 up front in the interest rate versus adding $4,000 to the down payment. So usually what ends up happening is the break-even point ends up being on average around six to seven years. On average, though, people refinance their loan within a six-year period because mm-hmm. interest rates tend to drop down below what they initially had. And so the problem here is if we pay points, especially a lot of points, just to feel good about the interest rate we got up front, statistically what ends up happening is people will refinance before they actually broke even on the investment that they made up front. So they actually lost money over a period of time. And so unfortunately, I see a lot of people who pay points only because they want the emotional connection of a lower interest rate. And this is where we talked about, I think this is the first episode. It was like, just don't talk about numbers with people because we, it starts to just put us in a bad headspace. We start doing things performatively for other people to say like, Oh, I got a 3.99% interest rate just to feel better. Right. It's like keeping up with the Joneses, but interest rate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But you paid thousands of dollars to like stunt on your friends. Like who, who cares? So, I think paying up to one point is fine. Beyond that, I think you really need to start running a lot of different financial scenarios over a period of time to see which one is better. Um, And the Loan Clarity Advisor Calculator I have does do that. You can actually compare 
mix and match different scenarios and see which one's better. But under a point, I think you're fine uh, to do so. More than that, we really want to make sure that the break-even period makes sense for how long you're going to be in the home and that you're really confident you're not going to refinance before then. It's not the end of the world if you do. You just will likely end up having a net cost that those points didn't do anything for you over a longer period of time. No, that makes total sense. And I think that that's something I know when I was buying my first home, uh, my loan officer at the time had sort of advised me as he was walking me through the whole process that the loan that we went with wasn't my favorite at the time. It was an FHA arm way back in the day mm, um, to wow. be able to get us to a certain loan wow. amount that I was looking for because I was a 20 year old kid. I had a really, really small budget and that dropped our payment by a hundred dollars a month. And there were some, you know, really strict parameters around, you know, how much it could go up by. And mm-hmm. he, you know, advised me, he's like, most people will refinance within the first five or six years anyways. He's like, that gives you time to build your career up, to build your income up. He's like, you may decide you want yeah. to move. And then in that time, your rate wouldn't have gone. I think when we looked at it, it the chances it would have potentially gone up above what the fixed rates were at that time, I think in year mm-hmm. four. So there was yeah. potentially a one-year opportunity cost. But in that time, I was also yeah. saving $150 or $100 a month on my payment, which for me was yeah. really a make or break at the time. And I think yeah. helped me make the decision to stop renting because I hated living in an apartment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that that's something that everyone is like, oh, I want to buy a house. You know, renting is throwing my money away. And, you know, with a house, I can build equity and everything else. And I know you and I were chatting about this the other day, but I want to talk about you know, the comparison financially between renting versus owning and when that makes yeah. sense for someone. Yes. I do want to throw in one thing really quickly that uh, you jogged my mind about with points is that a really quality loan officer is not going to give you an option with a ton of points added to it. Really salesy loan officers, uh, the ones that aren't going to be the best ones to work with. And a company that does this a lot is that co- a company I won't mention, but they're the one that has like the spaceship. You can kind of put that together. They will, if the average rate right now is 5%, they'll go throw multiple points. Like I've seen loan estimates with 12000 $20,000, $30,000 worth of points just so they can have a lower interest rate. And they use that as a pitch because they know their interest rate is higher than everyone else's. So they'll be like, we can get you a 3.99. Okay, but it's going to cost you $25,000 up front. It actually doesn't make sense financially, right. but that's just something to be aware of when you are shopping uh, for lenders. So with renting versus buying, I really think that buying is just almost always a better financial decision. I don't like the like renting is throwing money away thing because like I'm not a huge fan of everything Dave Ramsey says, but he has a couple little things I like where he says like renting is buying patience. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's very true. Like you might not be in a financial position where buying makes sense right now, primarily if you don't have a lot of uh, upfront cash, if you're kind of really strapped for cash um, and aren't able to build up even an emergency fund, buying may not be a good decision because you're going to have to pay for anything out of pocket where renting may be better to help you build up that savings. However, when you are in that position where your income is stable, you have savings available as well, and you feel a little more comfortable in the location that you're at with saying, I really like this area. I feel confident in like the growth of this area. Then I think buying is a really good decision um, because it's almost always financially better because you are building equity in the home with your payments and you're building appreciation 
in the home as well. Um, I think renting can be really good. Again, like if you have some uh, things that don't feel as stable financially, and then also if you're new to an area, um, I know a lot of people they'll they'll move across, uh, you know, they'll move to a different state for a job, or even just like maybe an hour or two away for a job, and they immediately want to buy. And I think it's so much better to rent, get comfortable with what neighborhoods feel like, where where do you like living, what neighborhoods you like, before you end up buying. Otherwise, you're going in blind to a neighborhood. And since real estate is so dependent on location, like even just a neighborhood by neighborhood, you don't want to buy into a neighborhood that you have no idea how it works, or you only heard about the neighborhood and didn't experience the neighborhood before you bought into it. Absolutely. No, I, I think that that's really important. And I think that, again, depending on your personal financial situation, your personal goals and what's going on in your life, that I don't, I don't, I really don't think that renting is bad. Mm-hmm. Assuming that it aligns with what you're trying to do in your life. I mean, I yeah. would have actually rented when we made this last move, but there wasn't anything where I could have three cats and three dogs and chickens. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. buying it was, and we were able to do a scouting trip ahead of time and, you know, do what we could. And there's been a learning curve with that. I mean, had I been able to, renting would have been much more ideal. And I think that when people can rent, like you said, if they're moving to a new area, if they're needing time to build up an emergency fund, because if you don't have an emergency fund and you buy a house, that means that you're going to be so much more stressed. You're going to have any mm-hmm. you know repairs potentially that you're having to either fund out of pocket or with credit card debt. And that's not a stress-free way <laughs> to be jumping yeah. into, you know, potentially the right. biggest investment that you make in your life with buying a house. And so I think understanding that and making sure that you're making it for the right reasons. And again, not talking about it with people around you until you've made up your own mind or maybe having talked with a professional first to decide what's best for you financially and what you can do. I think we're moving away from this to an extent, but I think for so long success has been measured by getting married and buying a house and, you know, you've Mm. you've thrived, you've gone out on your own and a, that's not accessible for everyone right now. And it's also not what everyone's looking for. You know, maybe you want a digital nomad and travel the world. Does buying make sense for you? Can you rent that out? You know, there are all these different scenarios to run through to decide what makes the most sense. Yeah. I know a CEO of a very large mortgage company who just rents. (laughs) To be fair, he has several rentals all over the nation that he just travels between. But that makes more sense to him. And he has the income that supports him being able to kind of do whatever he wants with his housing situation. But it is not the pinnacle of success, the ultimate thing that you have to do. Do you feel like there is a timeline that people need to have in mind of like, they need to be in a home for a specific amount of time if they're going to make a buying decision? Like if they're like, oh, I'm not really sure if I'm going to continue living here for the next three to five years. Do you think renting is better in that situation? I feel like if you think you're going to be somewhere for five years or more, depending mm-hmm. on the market yeah. prices, you know, rent versus everything else, I think five years is kind of the break even point from what I've looked at for it being justified. And I mean, home buying is a process. There are, there are pros to renting, right? You have things that aren't your responsibility. You potentially have a landlord or a property management company that can be great and can handle some things for you. And so I think for the most part, yeah, the, the three to five year mark. I personally, I think would get really antsy by the three-year mark if I was renting somewhere and would absolutely mm-hmm. want to buy. But I think if you're not sure you're going to stay in an area for at least three, if not five, that I wouldn't necessarily look to buy. Again, unless it made really great financial sense. Or is it something that would make a great rental 
later on? You know, is it in a college town? Is it mm-hmm. somewhere that's in demand where even if you weren't going to be staying there that full time could still pay off? Yeah, absolutely. I still haven't made up my mind on like the three to five year, but it's somewhere within there that I'm like, it's after three years definitely feels right, but it's so hard to tell. Like there's what, what is the actual break even point? I think it just depends to a lot on like the difference in your rental payment versus your mortgage payment, because for a lot of people, their rent is lower than their mortgage payment might be. And for others, it's the opposite. Their rental payment is a lot higher than their potential mortgage could be. Um, and it really, I think it, comes down to those personal situations. But I think, yeah, three to five years, as long as you're not in a position where you're like, I could move out of state tomorrow (laughs) or next year, then getting to that point of figuring out, okay, I think I want to work towards buying a house Mm -hmm. uh, within the three to five year range is a really good decision. Well, I think too, what you just touched on is, especially if you're able to buy and it's significantly less expensive than for you to rent, depending on you know what the mm-hmm. area is, that that can also lend to you maybe making the jump sooner. And on the flip side, if you can rent you know less expensively than you can buy and you're unsure of how long you're going to be somewhere, is there as much financial incentive? Yeah, absolutely. I think you had a really interesting take on this and we were talking about this offline. So Sometimes people will look at renting as throwing money away, which I think you and Mm -hmm. I both disagree with in the vast majority of situations. However, when you look at renting as throwing money away and you look at having a mortgage or buying a home as not throwing money away, you had kind of brought up that the opportunity cost of both of them and that you're looking to decrease your overall cost. So essentially you were talking about how you're looking to decrease your overall out-of-pocket expense. And when you buy a house... Let's say that you rent for 10 years or you buy a house uh, yes. and you live there for 10 years. What is your cost at the end of that time frame? and comparing those? A lot of people, for some reason, well, I know the reason because everyone wants to talk about the good things in finance that happened to them and never want to talk about the bad, especially with the way the housing market has moved over the past 10 years. There's this thought that when you buy a home, it has to be profitable and people start treating housing like where I'm going to enjoy spending my time and where my cat is going to meow all around the house, like that that is supposed to be an investment. And so I think people view when they buy a house that it has to be, I have to make money. And really for most people, home actually still costs them money, even over a period of 10 to 15 years. The only thing that's better over buying a house than renting is not the fact that you make money buying a house. It's that it's so much cheaper than renting over that same period of time. The main reason why is because the monthly payment that you're paying in, part of that goes towards your equity in the home. So how much money you could get if you sold. And then also your home grows in appreciation. Whereas a rental payment usually increases over time, historically a three-year percent increase over time. And none of that goes towards you. And so when you actually look at the cost of a loan, And then the potential cost of repairs, along with the cost of things like property taxes and homeowner's insurance, buying home, even over 10 years, usually you have a net loss considering everything, appreciation, cost of the loan, taxes, insurance, you usually actually lose money, but you lose less money than if you were renting over the same period of time. And when I run these calculations through the loan comparison software that I have, most people, that difference is actually around $150,000 or buying is... $150,000 better decision than renting over that 10 to 15 year period. So you're still losing money buying. Maybe you lost on average like $10,000 over 10 years, but renting, you may have lost $100,000 over 10 years. 
uh, because you were never able to get that money back. So that's really the big thing. There are instances in where people actually make money buying house if they have crazy appreciation that they're seeing, but it's not the norm. Right. And people are way more willing to share. Uh, it's the survivorship bias. People are way more willing to share, hey, I made $20,000 by selling my house than I took a bath on my house. <laughs> <laughs> right. No one wants to share those stories. Right. Well, I, I think that was just such an interesting take because I think so many of us are looking at it, yes, as an investment, but it's it's an, it's investing and decreasing our costs for most of us at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah. Which I think is a really powerful takeaway. Yeah. And when people get a check when they sell their home and like that calculation that I use in the loan comparison software I have considers the cost to sell that you pay for like realtors commission around 6%. Like when people get a check back at closing when they sell their home over, let's say 10 years, most of the time people are going to get money and they'll be like, look, I made money owning a home. When in reality, if we looked at all the numbers broken down, they actually lost money over that time. The money that they're getting back is the equity that they paid into the home. And so they're getting it back. So they didn't actually make money, even though you got a check, it was your money to begin with. You still may have lost a little bit of money over a period of time, but you would have lost way more through renting. Absolutely. No, I, I do. I think so many people focus on that last, the, oh, look, I got this. I get to walk away with the profit. And then yeah, but <laughs> what did you pay for repairs and maintenance? And it's because no one's like seeing how much they actually paid in. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You're like, okay, let's do just a little bit of math here for a second. Cause that's great. And I'm not trying to you know, shit on your parade, but we, we have to factor it all in. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's a really good way to look at it, Kyle. And I think that that was a really unique perspective. Is there anything else? Oh, did you want to chat about the standard deduction? Yeah, I think we can cover that a little bit. You might be able to shed a little bit more light on that since that is definitely more your domain than it is mine. Yes. But I do know, um, I think a lot of people get confused when they talk with me and they're like, oh, I can just write everything off, right? I'm like, well, it's you could, but you're going to save more money taking the standard deduction, at least most people will, than by itemizing things like their mortgage interest. So could you maybe share a little bit more about some of those differences? Yeah, absolutely. So from a tax perspective, and this is something that we check for everyone that's a homeowner that comes to us, we look at, is it better to itemize or is it better to take the standard mm -hmm. deduction? And essentially the standard deduction has gone up quite a bit in the last few years after moving incrementally up. It is now at $12,950 per person. So that's double if you are a you know married household. And with that, it's basically a free reduction on income. So if you're looking at, you know, my spouse and I make $100,000 and when you get taxed on your income for income tax purposes, the IRS says, cool, we know that you have things that are deductions that you've spent that are not really part of your take home. We're going to give you a free subtraction mm -hmm. on your income and you pay taxes after that. So when you're looking at it and what's 1295, 13, little under it's 25 and some change. So we're going to say 26,000 on that hundred thousand dollars of income. So that means that you're actually paying income taxes on $74,000 instead of the $100,000. So it reduces what you get taxed on and then reduces your tax bill. And what a lot of people will do when they send over all of their information, for a lot of them, including their 1098 from their mortgage, they'll say, oh, you know, I didn't see where my mortgage was taken on my taxes, where my expenses were taken on there, you know, my interest, mm -hmm. my property taxes. And that's because for a lot of people, if you're not able to get up to that standard deduction amount or exceed it, then it doesn't justify itemizing those deductions. Yeah. Let's say that with 
your mortgage interest and property taxes, you come up to $6,000. We could claim, we could itemize and claim that $6,000 in your taxes, but that means you're now being taxed on $94,000 rather than $74,000. And so it's always worth understanding unless you're purchasing a home that has a pretty large mortgage that you're going to be using for it, you're most likely, or you have some extenuating circumstances, right? Maybe you make massive charitable donations or other things that are going on. You're not going to hit that standard deduction. So it's better to take the standard deduction than to itemize. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why like talking with somebody like yourself is very helpful in in tax planning uh, to figure out which one is better. Because I think a lot of people get confused about it. Um, or they think like I can, I get to add on writing off my mortgage interest or other things on top of the standard deduction when it's actually kind of a, a cool yes. thing that the standard deduction got raised so much. Um, because for a lot of people, it used to be, okay, either I can write off $6,000 or as a single person, the government would actually say, well, we'll let you write off almost $13,000 for free if you want to. I'm going to take that all day long <laughs> over taking my itemized. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I know I've seen people that have bought a house in the prior tax year and they come to us and they're like, well, I thought this was going to help me tax wise. Yeah, we we never had that conversation. And like you bought a $300,000 house and the numbers on those, you know, generally shake out to you being under the standard deduction. So we're still going to take the standard deduction and it's better for you. It just didn't help you on the tax Mm -hmm. front necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely don't buy yeah, a house for the tax uh, benefits because usually most people don't have zero tax benefit. <laughs> it's like having children for the tax benefit, mm-hmm. right? You're like, no, I had kids. I get a tax write-off. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the same thing with people who like, they just started an LLC and then they're like, go to a coffee shop and like, don't worry, it's a business expense. I'll write off. I'm like, it's still a $7 latte. Right. You're still spending the money. <laughs> it's not how the write-off works. It's not free. Right. It, it always, um, every single time it brings me back to Schitt's Creek. You know, it's a write-off. It's a write-off. <laughs> well, who pays for it? I don't know. The government people. Um, because yeah, I, I think if you don't fully understand write-offs and how they work, like you're still spending that money out of pocket. It's just that if it's a business deduction, you're, you know, potentially getting a portion of that back or paying a portion of it, le- you know, less. You're not, if you spend $7, you're not paying $7 less in taxes. Like it's a ratio or a percentage, not just yeah, a direct. Yeah, 80% of a $7 coffee is still, what, six something? <laughs> you're still spending the money. Yeah, 560, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 So you're still you're still out the money that like you could have just kept in your pocket and paid yeah. the 20% in taxes on. Yeah. So. <sighs> well, thank you. I think on our next episode, we're going to be diving a little bit more into self-employment. So that was actually a perfect segue. And chatting about the strategy around buying a house and risk management. So we'll catch everyone next week. Make sure if you want to check out Kyle's calculator or any of the social media, you check the notes. It's all linked in there. If you loved this episode, make sure to leave a five-star review for a chance to win a free financial strategy session with yours truly, Caitlin Magnuson. We do the drawing the first week of every month. And to be eligible, you'll want to leave a five-star review and include your IG handle so we can contact the winner. I'll see you next time where we'll chat real finances for real people.